Hello, and welcome back to the Blockchain.com podcast. My name is Garrett Heilman. I'm the head of research at Blockchain.com and a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. One of the most common questions we receive at Blockchain.com is where can people go to learn more about crypto? Now, for over a decade, Blockchain.com has tried to help by providing reliable data information. In addition to this podcast, we also have on our blog an intro to crypto guide. And every month, we also publish a monthly outlook, which contains at the bottom links to what we're reading and listening to. But no single person or institution can cover everything in crypto. The role of explaining the world of cryptocurrency largely rests with the broader media. Both traditional media and social media are incredibly important to the vast majority of people still new to crypto. In this latest installment in our ongoing discussion of the crypto media landscape, I spoke with Laura Shin, a veteran crypto journalist and host of the popular Unchained podcast. Laura is one of the most well-respected journalists in crypto, and anyone who has followed her work knows she is not afraid of tackling thorny topics. In this episode, Laura and I discuss her background and what led her to first start reporting on Bitcoin, how media coverage of Bitcoin and crypto has evolved in the years since she began covering the industry, and we discuss Laura's new book coming out next month titled The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. Blockchain.com will be giving out some free copies of this book, so keep an eye out on our Twitter feed for more details. Well, Laura, welcome to the blockchain.com podcast. We have a tradition where we ask all of our guests uh, how they earned their first money. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, that is a fascinating question because I don't know if I remember. I Oh, no. I, I think so. It was either one of two things. It was either that because I worked at the Stanford Daily in college and I uh we 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 were paid back then. So actually that might have been it. Um because hilariously before going to college, I remember applying to various jobs, you know, doing like like waiting tables or working in a bookstore or whatever. And I never got any job like that. So when people always talk about kind of, um, you know, their time doing like flipping burgers or whatever. Like I actually never had a job like that. Um, my first real quote unquote real job was as <laughs> what's known as a Kelly girl, which I, like younger people may not know what this was. Uh, like the term had to even be explained to me at the time, but it was basically working as a temp for a temporary services a staffing agency called Kelly Services. But that was the summer after my freshman year of college. So I actually do think maybe my first, the first money I ever made was writing for the Stanford Daily. Wow. Well, I've I've never heard of Kelly Girls before, so that's uh, that's a, that's a new one. I think you're the first to to uh, come on the show and and uh, mention that as a as a way. We get a lot of people actually who um, worked on farms uh, for some reason uh, within our company because we always ask new hires at blockchain.com how they earn their first dollar. So, so I think farming is still number one, uh, uh, well, in our, I, I actually <laughs> am from Ohio. Um, but I'm from like the suburbs. So 
yeah, didn't didn't have much interaction with farms. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, uh, we're continuing our series here with you, uh, interviewing the the folks that typically do the interviewing. Uh, you know, we had we had Frank from the Block on, and uh, Natalie, who's a, a former broadcast journalist, Natalie Brunel, um, who's got a podcast now, and so um, we're really excited to chat with you about the role of the the, the media uh, in, in the crypto space and, and how it's evolved. You're, I think one of the, um, folks who's been covering crypto longest, who, who's actively, you know, still active at least. I, I know some of the folks that I started working with, um, at Coindesk back in 2013, um, that was my first time, first full-time gig in crypto. People like Emily Spaven and others who was editor in chief back then, uh, have kind of moved on to other things and, and you've stuck with it. So I guess maybe a good place to start is, uh, tell us about your, your pre-crypto life and, and what first, uh, got you interested in crypto and, and, um, and then we can chat about why it continues to be interesting, I guess. Well, I, you know, have been a journalist for a long time. So I, I think I've been a journalist for uh, over 15 years, maybe when I uh, first got into crypto. Um, and during that time, I'd covered all kinds of things. I never really found any particular beat, I would say, that um, really spoke to me. I had covered a lot of kind of like arts and culture things. Um, you know, I was also a yoga instructor, so I did kind of yoga slash health related things for a little while, um, covered a little bit of travel food, like, you know, more featurey, light, lighter fare. And then I went to grad school because I felt like climate change and sustainability would be a beat that would last me basically for the rest of my life. <laughs> and um, I graduated in 2008, which was around the time that the media industry shrank about 22%. <laughs> so hilariously, if you look at the job, um, the the percentage of graduates who got a job right out of graduation, 2008 was like the lowest year ever. It was like 62% and like all the other years were much higher than that. Um, so it took me a little bit longer to, to actually get a job back in journalism. Um, but when I did, I started covering personal finance and that was in 2011. And then a few years after that, I started freelancing for Forbes. And it was during that time that I was freelancing for Forbes where I was getting to this point where I kind of had felt like I learned most of the stuff that there was to learn about personal finance. And it just wasn't a beat that changed very much. So it was getting to the point where I had this feeling of, oh, am I going to kind of write the same sort of story idea, but with different words? And I, this is just like not the kind of thing I have any desire to do. <laughs> um, I really, I really like learning new things and, um, you know, I feel like if I'm going to write something, I'm going to do give it my best shot that first try. And so, um, you know, trying to do the same topic over again, but in a different way is maybe not um, my favorite thing. And at that time, they said, oh, well, we have this idea to do a Forbes FinTech 50 list. Do you want to be one of the lead reporters on it? So I said yes. And um, the other reporter and I just divided the list into 
categories. And I took the category of digital currencies and became completely obsessed. And what I would say probably is that so not only was it that I kind of immediately realized, oh, this is probably just going to change the world, you know, because at that point I understood enough about how the banking system worked through my coverage of personal finance and even just generally from what I was learning about what fintech did and what kind of problems it was trying to solve. But also it is a beat that is constantly changing as we've seen, you know, the at that time when I first got in, the <laughs> kind of like conventional wisdom at that time in 2015 was blockchain, not Bitcoin. And so actually the first big magazine story I wrote about this technology was about how blockchain technology would make Wall Street more efficient. <laughs> and clearly I was very wrong. My sources were very wrong and um, things have turned out quite differently. And of course, that's not to say that that's not going to happen. It's just that you know, I think we would all say that the main things that have happened since that time have not really really been in that arena. So, um, yeah, that was how I got started. And I think the reason crypto has kept my interest is because, like I said, it's constantly changing. I never feel like I can keep up. I'm constantly learning. It's always a challenge, and that is just the kind of thing I love. That's that's awesome. So, so just to to make sure I've got the timetable correct, this is roughly 2015 when 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 uh, you started yeah. to, to focus on yep. crypto. Okay. Yeah, okay, like yeah. May so, 2015, I think, is when I fell down the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm thinking back to that. That's when we organized the first consensus conference in New York, and uh, and I remember folks like Blythe Masters, who was appearing on magazine covers back then very much, you know, talking about how blockchain technology was going to transform Wall Street. And, and that was all the rage. Um, one of the, the ways I first came across your work uh, was, I, I, you know, a pretty hard hitting piece of journalism you did uh, on, on uh, the Tapscots, who were also at the time um, very much, you know, in the blockchain you know, for corporates, you know, written about this and, and, um, and, uh, young Tapscott, uh, I, I believe got in some trouble. Uh, and I think you may have been the one who kind of exposed this, um, for circulating, you correct me if I'm wrong on the details there, circulating a pitch deck for a business venture that had some pictures of people like, I think Katie Hahn and, and others, uh, as advisors who hadn't actually agreed to, to uh, be involved in this, and uh, it was quite, quite a provocative piece. It really was like, whoa, you know, there's there's journalists really covering, you know, uh, critically this whole space. This isn't just a, you know, um, you know, kind of a trade press kind of situation where it's all positive, and and, and you weren't afraid to kind of go after some some dubious business behavior. Is that is that kind of basically the story, or feel free to kind of tell it from A to Z? Because that I think was a big moment. I think for the crypto media, kind of gaining some credibility in my eyes, at least. Yeah, I mean, so you got the the outlines of the story correctly. Um, yeah, and the you know the one key piece of it was that the fund that he was trying to raise for it was to go public. So you know there are pretty strict laws around what you're supposed to tell people and and it's kind of simple. It's you're, you're supposed to tell them the truth. And so to have uh, essentially 
not told the truth about multiple people that they were claiming as advisors, that was, um, you know, something that I felt was important for people to know. And, um, you know, they were big names and they were pretty strategically chosen, it felt like, because one kind of maybe seemed affiliated with, or not affiliated, but had an association in the public's mind with Bitcoin, um, another one with um, maybe Ethereum, another one with Ripple. And so it was, or, or, you know, Katie, maybe with regulation, which obviously is, gives a lot of credibility. And so, um, yeah, that was something that, you know, when I found out about it, it was clearly a story. It was clearly something people had to know about. You know, if you were going to put your money into this, you would want to know, oh, hey, the people that are asking me to give up millions of my dollars to have them manage are not telling me the truth about who is associated with their project. So, um, you know, I actually knew Alex personally. We had met at a retreat on Necker Island and I was friendly with him. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it's, it's awkward, but I'm doing my job. It's not, it's not anything personal. Um, you know, even to this day, I think we're still friends on Facebook. I'm sure if we saw each other, we would say hello. And, you know, I, there's nothing personal. I know his father as well. Um, but, you know, like I said, this is clearly something that they were doing that, uh, was, uh, yeah, something I'm sure that the Securities and Exchange Commission in Canada or Toronto or Ontario, I, I believe it was, would frown upon. So I reported on it. And, and for, I think uh, the question that kind of I think follows from from that is is kind of I, I guess your perspective on how coverage of crypto has evolved. I mean, back in 2013, you know, with CoinDesk. You know, it was very early days for media coverage of crypto, and and um, you know, I think there was some coverage, you know, coming from like Wired magazine as early as 2011. Um, you know, and and uh, you know, you'd see the occasional article on a, a Valley Wag or, or Gawker, I think, about like the Silk Road in those early days. Then you have CoinDesk kind of coming into the the, the space in 2013. And, and um, just kind of walk us through, because you've been in this space for so long, how you think media coverage has evolved from when you first got involved to, to where we are today. And what's the state of um, media coverage? Is it a, a healthy, um, balanced um, kind of you know, media landscape for crypto? Are there, is there room for improvement? What things would you change if you were the all-powerful media uh, supervisor for this for this whole sector? Well, I think you have the full range. You know, there's obviously um, probably reporters who are maybe less familiar with all the nuances who probably get some things wrong or they maybe repeat certain phrases that have become mantras, even though maybe the facts don't necessarily back the, the, those claims up. And so, you know, you have kind of that happening at one end, but I would never judge one of those people because, you know, as a reporter, I'm sure I've gotten a lot of things wrong, or I'm sure that um, there were times when I maybe was approaching a subject and didn't have as much background as, you know, would have been uh better to have. But everybody has to start somewhere. And frankly, um, coming to a topic with quote unquote beginner's mind is actually also an advantage because sometimes as a newer reporter, you can kind of notice something that other people have just gotten used to and pick up on it as a story. Whereas like others maybe 
because they've kind of been in the industry too long, um, almost don't see things with fresh eyes. And so there can be, there can be an advantage in that as well. And so, you know, each time somebody creates a piece, they're, they're going to come at it with, you know, whatever experience they do or don't have. And, um, in either scenario that can be an advantage or a disadvantage. And so, um, you know, then at the other end, you have people who, um, probably do understand a lot of the nuance and so they can report in that way. And I do think obviously that's probably a really great and wonderful thing. Um, for instance, probably this uh, one storyline that the crypto community has been dealing with since day one is this association that crypto has with crime. And, um, you know, maybe in the beginning that was uh, a somewhat more fair characterization simply because Silk Road was the big first use case of crypto that took off. But as time has gone on, obviously, um, that has become less the story. But there definitely are certain people in the media who still perpetuate that narrative without knowing the facts. Um, you know, if you do actually look up the facts, then you will see that Chainalysis reports that um, crypto crime, I believe, I, I actually uh, will need to see if they have released um, a more recent report. But the last one I saw showed that less than 1% of all crypto transactions were uh, crime associated. And then when you look at the traditional financial system, um, I believe this was, I, I, it was either an IMF or, or World Bank report. I think it was IMF. I, I don't remember. This was a while ago. I looked these statistics up, but um, whatever that report was, it was from you know a global financial um, kind of organization, and they said that they estimated that between two and five percent of all transactions in the traditional financial world um, are illicit are, are for illicit activity. And so clearly, at this moment, the you know, the uh, traditional uh, financial system is much more associated with crime than crypto. But, you know, if you ask any everyday person on the street who really just takes a passing interest in crypto, they're probably going to think the opposite. And so these narratives do linger. They're kind of a little bit difficult sometimes to um, to change around. You know, I actually saw this recently about um, environment, uh, environmental issues involving NFTs in like basically it's like a friend of mine on Facebook. And um, I, of course, just had to comment. I mean, somebody I'm very friendly with, um, but I had to say, oh, well, here are the actual facts about all that. And just explaining that actually we don't really know what the energy mix is at the moment. And that since so many, my, in fact, pretty much all the mining that was in China has moved out, more likely, um, you know, whatever the mix will be going forward will be cleaner than it, what, it, what it used to be and et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, um, when it when it comes to the media, you know, reporters are in deadline. Um, they have to sometimes move very quickly. And sometimes the sources that they get aren't the best sources. And so sometimes you end up quoting people who later you realize, oh, they maybe didn't back up their statements um, as well as they could have, or, um, or you didn't get the person that you wanted, or, you know, whatever it might be. And so um, I do think that just with the um, kind of like what's the word, like great broader spectrum of people covering this, that overall the crypto community probably is enjoying much better coverage of the space than early on when there were so many fewer people covering crypto. 
Um, but yeah, of course, they're going to be hits and misses. And, you know, that's just the name of the game. And um, yeah, overall, I would say that probably the media has both improved and could improve further. Um, you know, probably the one other thing that I would like to add is that I um, kind of, you know, the tagline for my show is you're no hype resource for all things crypto. And I do prefer that sort of like, um, you know, not hyped up style of reporting. In my mind, like hopefully people can still glean that despite the fact that I don't put in any effort into hyping this stuff up. I think it's so cool and I love it. <laughs> um, you know, but to my mind, it's like the facts are cool enough. Like all I have to do is present the facts. And yeah, that sometimes means reporting on some of the negative things because there certainly are negative aspects to all of this. But um, that doesn't, I, I don't think, detract from the larger story, which is that this technology is going to bring about a lot of good in the world and it's going to really shake things up in a good way. So yeah, I'm I'm frankly excited to see more of the coverage and to see more of the improvement in it. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, when when people ask me about like what's changed in in crypto, obviously a lot's changed. But one of the things I like to highlight is just you know even um, as recently as 2017, you know the last cycle of of you know kind of significant adoption prior to the current one. I mean, just the number of podcasts that are available, uh, the number of resources out there has just, I think, uh, grown massively. And it's a question that we continue to get all the time, you know, where to go to find reliable information? Um, you know, where can I go to, you know, learn about um, cryptocurrencies? And, uh, you know, it's a much improved kind of situation today than it was even just a, a few years ago, um, thanks to the good work by yourself and others. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, even a lot of crypto companies like your your own have uh, their own little, you know, podcasts or or broadcasts or whatever it is that they're doing. So clearly, there are a lot of options. So let's uh, let's talk um, a bit about um, kind of the state of crypto today. And I'm glad you brought up some of these kind of lasting narratives, problematic narratives around crime and the very complex kind of story that is, you know, um, proof of work mining and, and how much energy is consumed and, you know, whether or not it's boiling the oceans. Um, what, what's your kind of overall sense of, um, you know, uh, where where crypto is at today um, in terms of, you know, you know, some people talk about crossing the chasm to mainstream adoption. Are, are we there yet? Um, are these these kind of persistent narratives around crime and energy consumption a barrier to getting there? Um, you know, do you feel like these uh, um, questions can be are these these concerns uh, can be can be addressed anytime soon, or they're going to continue to to drag down the space and and uh, prevent many people um, from 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 adopting and using cryptocurrency. No, I would definitely say that mainstream adoption is getting underway. I mean, clearly, looking at the last year with NFTs, um, hilariously, 
um, I guess probably a year and a couple months ago, I had Jake Bruckman on my show and he was telling me about NFTs and he was saying that NFTs were going to bring normies in. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, I didn't really kind of grasp just how quickly that was going to happen. And, you know, very, very quickly after I realized, oh, whoa, um, he's clearly right, you know, and we're seeing, I mean, just look at the last year with, the, with these headlines around um, the different NFT things like, um, you know, uh, obviously NBA Top Shot, but then all the sort of similar follow-on um, agreements that were brokered with other big uh, sports leagues. Like um, there were some soccer ones. There was another one with the WNBA, um, you know, and, and then to branch out to seeing the sponsorships of the different arenas in Miami and Los Angeles, and then advertisements for FTX um, that included like Tom Brady and Giselle Bunchins. Like, I mean, it's very, very different from <laughs> crypto, uh, even just a few years ago. And because actually, if I think about 2017, what was fascinating is when those celebrities would get involved, typically it felt more like a scam and less like um, kind of a, an endorsement you could trust, right? If we remember kind of like some of the, the you know, Floyd Mayweather or Paris Hilton or, or um, shoot, I'm just blanking on who some of the other people were that tweeted about various ICOs. Um, but this time, you know, there was kind of a, a broader legitimacy to it all. And um, like I said, just uh, a lot of people that you wouldn't typically think of as being in this world, we're getting in. I mean, Ashton Kutcher and his wife did a a show where you had to like buy NFTs or something to watch it. So um, clearly, mainstream adoption is definitely underway. And um, you know, if if you look at somebody like Beeple, who now really feels like a crypto person, he was doing his digital art for thirteen years before this, right? He had like this other arena where he was an established, um, you know, a professional. And then suddenly it's like he's veering off into, or not veering, but he's doing the same work, but it's just now combined with crypto. And so there's so many other stories like that. And so in that regard, I really feel like it's drawing the normies in. Um, there, you know, I think are going to be much bigger announcements that we're going to see um, many more, you know, as the year went on, like, you know, Quentin Tarantino was getting involved. I think there's like other Hollywood types that are getting involved from, you know, certain things I've heard from various sources. So um, I would actually say brace yourselves because <laughs> it's it's probably going to just keep uh, encroaching on these other areas that we don't typically think of as um, being associated with crypto. Oh, and yeah, by the way, you know, um, Snoop Dogg has an Anon account, and <laughs> with his Anon account, he's been buying about buying NFTs and tweeting about them. So, you know, <laughs> it's definitely going in that direction. There's just no question. Uh, like uh, as Fred Ursum, the co-founder of Coinbase, uh, tweeted, and he's now um, a co-founder of Paradigm. He tweeted, "Turns out more people are interested in culture than than uh, than money." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh yes, that that would accurately reflect my my own friends and and my real life world." So, um, yes, I think that's where this is all going. Yeah, definitely. So, so people who are coming to crypto for the first time, 
and and stepping into Twitter and you know um, seeing some of the arguments and and food fighting that goes on on social media um, among different camps might be a little confused, maybe even turned off at some of the aggressive uh, you know tweeting and. Um, I was just curious about your perspective on, you know, what some people refer to as kind of the tribalistic nature of crypto and, um, you know, this term maximalism, you know, that's associated with certain cryptocurrencies and people being a maximalist for, say, Bitcoin or Ethereum and really attacking other other cryptocurrencies. Do you think this is a negative thing on whole for the cryptocurrency space and does kind of uh, turn people away? Do you think it actually might have some healthy competition kind of side to it where, you know, this kind of, you know, this kind of competition between the different kind of protocols actually makes everything stronger and better at the end of the day? What's your what's your view on all that? So my view is that the tribalism doesn't turn everybody off clearly because there are, you know, new people who come in and join one of these tribalistic crowds. Um, so for the people who it attracts, you know, that's kind of like a, a bonus for them. It's it's something that appeals to them and something they want to participate in. For others, yeah, it might be a turnoff, but there are plenty of, of other people who don't have that same tribal attitude that they can also hang out with and uh, talk about crypto with. So I feel like everybody will sort of find their place. And in that regard, it really doesn't differ that much from normal everyday life where um, you know, uh, like if you look at any any religion, you're going to maybe meet some practitioner of that religion on the street who doesn't kind of wear their religion on their sleeve. And then you might meet another practitioner of that religion who is more of um, a proselytizing type who, uh, you know, is going to try to convert you or, um, you know, going to talk a lot about uh, their participation in, in their faith. And so it's really just kind of, um, you know, whatever, whatever flavor you, you like, uh, you will find that. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, one thing that I do think is probably going to happen is that I, I do think maybe the tribalistic voices will become a smaller minority because, you know, just if you look at the world in general, most people, um, you know, like, like you probably hear, reference to um those sort of more extreme voices typically as like um the loud minority or like uh, a fringe voice or i mean and i'm not talking about in crypto in general but just in anything where there's kind of like the hardcore group that is very vocal they don't tend to represent the minority or the majority for pretty much anything whether it's like i said religion or sports or whatever it might be and so um i do think as crypto continues to grow and get more people into it, there will probably just simply by virtue of human nature be more of the people who don't have such um, tribalistic or fanatical views. That that's uh, that's uh, that I think there was a lot of wisdom in, in, in your, your words there. And uh, we'll be pointing people who come to us to, to ask us about all this food fighting they see on social media to, I think this little, little explanation of it. Um, so uh, I want to ask you about trying to learn about what's happening on the ground in, in some markets that it can sometimes be difficult to access as a journalist, as, as a researcher, as anyone. You know, I'm thinking in particular China and, and other places around the world 
that have um, very significant crypto activity, or at least have had in the past, and uh, you know, uh, aren't always as transparent and easy to kind of gain insights on as others. H- how have you approached that? Like trying to figure out what's really happening on the ground in China, say with this, you know, the latest crackdown or prior crackdowns or, you know, what's happening in, in, in other places, um, where there isn't as, uh, you know, a, a, a transparent, um, landscape for, for media, data, research, et cetera. Um, how do you approach that? So, um, so I have never uh, written a story that was trying to figure out what was going on on the ground in China or anything like that. So I, I can't speak to that necessarily, but I can talk about my book where um, there's a lot of news in the book. There's a lot of things that haven't been reported on before that was re- that I managed to get. And for that, um, what it came down to was kind of gaining the trust of a lot of people. There were definitely a lot of materials that it took me a while to coax someone to either give me access to or or just give to me outright. And um, what I did a lot also was, you know, constantly ask various sources, like, who should I be talking to? Who should I be talking to? Um, you know, whether it was about this or that, or, you know, I was always trying to get different names, trying to figure out what's the best way to approach this person. Um, you know, it doesn't make more sense for me to reach out to them cold. Uh, and so that they don't know, um, uh, so that they don't have to reveal to you that they might, you know, uh, do the interview with me? Or, you know, do you think it would be better if you made the introduction? Um, lots of discussions like that. Um, and there was also a lot of, um, just like reading and sleuthing and, um, not being afraid to follow random leads on the internet. Um, just, yeah, basically going down a lot of internet rabbit holes. Um, and, you know, one one good thing that helped me a lot, I think, was that people knew my work. And so um, that, I think, did a lot of that work of building trust with sources. And so um, in a way, you know, if if somebody knew me, not everybody knew me, obviously, when I was reaching out, but in the cases where they had heard of me or they had heard a podcast or read my articles or whatever it might be, um, you know, I think that helped that they knew that I was serious about this work, that I understood the technology, that um, I, you know, I have had, like previous to writing the book, I have had other sources say to me things like, oh, I really appreciate when you... Um, you know, write articles about me because I noticed you never take my quotes out of context. So, you know, if I'm going to use somebody's quote, I don't just like use it for my own ends, but I um, use it to um, buttress a point that is in line with their larger point, you know, because even if I can only pull a sentence, I'm I'm just going to use it to, um, you know, to make the same point that they were making to me in the conversation. So things like that, I feel helped quite a lot. Um, and then frankly, some of it's luck. I mean, there's one person who spoke with me who, you know, is a key character in the book. And, um, I, they had told me, oh yeah, because there were other people who 
written books, you know, on early Ethereum. And they said, oh, yeah, I, I haven't talked to any of the other reporters, just you. I said, oh, why did you um, just agree to talk to me? And they were like, I don't know. You know, I just hadn't talked to any of the others. And then finally I was like, hmm, I should just tell my story somewhere. And so you reached out and you were it. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. Um, <laughs> so the book, the book, by the way, is, is a forthcoming book, if I'm not mistaken, right? It's not actually available yet. The Cryptopians? It comes out February 22nd. Yeah. Okay, the Cryptopians. I, yeah. Yep. Idealism, greed, lies in the making of the first big cryptocurrency craze uh, comes out February 22nd. So you can pre-order it on Amazon and, and elsewhere. And um, I wanted to ask you about writing a book about crypto, given how fast, you know, pace this space is and the very real risk. I mean, I face this when we do research, we put up a price chart, the price drops 20%. We're like, oh boy, we have to redo that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Garrick, I mean, Garrick, you- <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, it's a narrative nonfiction book and the events that I cover, um, the, the main action ends in early 2018. Got it. Okay, so yeah, you're going into the history here, which is kind of frozen in time, which is uh, which is nice, and uh, and and Ethereum features pretty prominently, correct, in the in the book. Yeah, I would say because it describes how the ICO craze happened, and Ethereum was the main platform for that. The roughly, I would say maybe seventy five or eighty percent of the book is a history of Ethereum. And there's four pretty meaty chapters on the DAO attack because that was definitely the biggest event in Ethereum's history. And when I went in to cover that, I really had no idea of what had really happened. And yeah, once I got in there, I was like, oh my God, there was there's a lot. So um yeah, that was that was really fun and fascinating to report. And, it, and it's still relevant because it keeps getting brought up um, to this day. You know, a lot of uh, folks, for example, you know, in the Solana community, um, you know, will will reference this, or when when the Ethereum community is attacking some 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 other group or criticizing some other protocol, um, people will say, "What about the DAO?" You know, and so this this history is still very much with us today and and relevant to to what's playing out right now. Um, yeah, or I myself think about it a lot, actually, because of all these hacks and DeFi and you know mm-hmm. other governance issues with DAOs. So, um, yes, <laughs> I'm reminded yeah. of what happened with the DAO a lot. Yeah, no, I, I remember being at DevCon two in Shanghai, um, and this is just a few months after that. And and uh, I remember a lot of the Ethereum developers were looking around, wondering, "Is the hacker here?" You know, I think it might be this guy. It was. <laughs> It was very, very. Uh, it was a very big deal, uh, to put it mildly, and and continues to be important to, you know, the the crypto space. We're just about out of time, Laura, and I want to also give you a chance to uh, tell people beyond the book where they can go to to follow your work, to 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 hear um, your interviews, and then also in addition to you uh, letting people know where people can go to learn more about you and follow your work. What if you're comfortable sharing? Um, uh, what other sources do you find most helpful? Um, cause again, people are always asking where to go to get reliable information. Do you mind sharing a recommended podcast or a person to follow on Twitter or, or even a journalist? Are you comfortable doing that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many. Um, so for my work, you can go to my website, unchainedpodcast.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin. 
And uh, I also have the Unchained podcast account on Twitter, which is Unchained underscore pod. And yeah, definitely, if you haven't yet, pre-order the book, which is at bit.ly slash Cryptopians, and that's spelled C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S. And as for other resources, I definitely find probably the three main crypto media very good, um, Coindesk, The Block, and Decrypt. And a lot of mainstream media, I feel like, is quite good at covering crypto. I know for whatever reason, the crypto community likes to rag on the mainstream media. But if you find the right reporters in that world, you can definitely find good coverage. Obviously, I want to give a shout out to my former colleagues at Forbes. Um, well, actually, I never worked with Michael Del Castillo. He was hired after I left, but um, we are sort of, uh, what's the word, honorary colleagues. <laughs> and also Jeff Coughlin. And um, in terms of other publications, um, I would say there's good coverage at Bloomberg. Um, I actually also really like uh, reading even like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal on a lot of crypto stuff because I feel like they get things like regulation and um, other things involving the traditional financial markets and crypto uh, really well. And um, yeah, other than that, if you're interested in DeFi, I would say The Defiant is a great resource. And um, if you're somewhat new to the space, then I've really enjoyed Patrick O'Shaughnessy's different series on his podcast um, where he it's invest like the best, but then he also has a new one that is focused on Web3. And I think I think it's called Web3 Breakdowns, but I, I forget what the exact um what the exact name is of that show. I can picture the the um the uh, the uh, what's it called the podcast cover in my mind. I just can't picture that or recall the name. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's honestly, there's so much good media. So if I were you, I just get on crypto Twitter and start following a bunch of people and pretty soon you will find the sources that you like. Great advice. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. A real pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please rate us and leave a review as it really helps boost our visibility to more listeners.